This is the Theology Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Malden, and I'm here today with my co-host, Andrew Davison, and we are talking about this special series on systematic theology, its scope, purpose, and mission. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, today we're speaking with Ian McFarland, who is a professor of theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Let's talk, Andrew, about why uh, we wanted to bring Ian into this special series on systematic theology. Well, I'm struck when I look at our, I think, really fantastic list of guests who are coming onto this podcast, that they have such an enviable reputation, both as writers and as teachers. And I think that expertise in teaching is often something that goes unnoticed unless you've had the good fortune to be in the classroom with them. But I've witnessed Ian's teaching firsthand in Cambridge, and I was so impressed by his approach that I've really consciously let it influence my own. So the way in which I write my lecture notes, the way in which I prepare them to give to students, this is absolutely following his uh, template and example. So this is teaching, but also his writing. That's another important reason for asking him to join us. And it shows that he's really a systematic theologian through and through from the books that he's written, but books on core systematic topics. So a couple um, earlier in his career on the theology of the human being and on the human being in the image of God, and a book on the fall, and more recently books on creation and then Christology's just come out, and a book on eschatology, the theology of the last things in the making. I'm interested that he's chosen to write on these topics that are important to him, topics that he thinks need covering, topics where he knows he's got something to say for the large world at large. Um, he's not writing books, it seems, just on every last topic. So not one perhaps on the doctrine of the Trinity or on the Holy Spirit. And I think there is an urge amongst systematic theologians just to cover absolutely everything and to, to be systematic and write about everything. And I think the fact that he has clearly this sense of what he's going to, going to write about, and it's not absolutely everything, is, is interesting. So the fact that he's writing on a wide range of things, I'd like to talk to him about that. And the fact that um, he's chosen a certain handful of topics, I think that's also important. And of course, because doctrines are related, even if he's not writing a whole book on something, that each thing that he's written will have something to say about other themes. Um, I think I said that uh, he was writing for the world at large, but I think it would be more accurate to say he's writing for the church and then for the church for the sake of the world at large, because I'm sure we'll be struck by his sense of vocation as a theologian, vocation as a theologian first for his own Lutheran church and tradition, especially in the United States, but then also for the wider church, because he's completely an ecumenist. In fact, feels almost wrong to say that he's a humanist because that would be like singling it out to some aspect of what he's interested in. But he's just an ecumenist, an ecumenical Christian through and through, committed to the whole of the church, but also, as I say, beyond the church. So resourcing the church for the sake of the world. I think there's no narrow or sectarian interest in the church here. He's a man deeply invested and troubled by suffering and injustice. Um, so I think we'll hear about that. If theology keeps the church true to its mission, then that will be to be a voice uh, in the world and especially along the, alongside those who've come off worse. Um, so I think he's got something 
really distinctive to bring to the podcast, and I look forward to hearing from him. In terms of his background, uh, Ian McFarlane started off at Trinity College Hartford, moved on to a master's degrees at Union Theological Seminary in New York and Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago, and completed his PhD under the direction of Kathy Tanner at Yale in 1995. The larger part of his career has been at Candler School of Theology at Emory University, uh, beginning in 20, 2005 through 2015, and then again after 2019, with a spell in between as Regis Professor of Divinity at Cambridge. He's now at Emory University as the Robert, Robert W. Woodruff Professor of theology. We might also mention, Andrew, that Ian is one of the editors of uh, important text, the Cambridge Dictionary of Christian Theology, an, ex an excellent uh, reference work. It's also been written uh, and arranged in a way that could be easily used to as a way to delve into theology, uh, even if you've already had some work under your belt. Uh, so we'd recommend that book, the Cambridge Dictionary of Christian Theology. With that, I'd say, Andrew, let's bring Ian into the conversation. Dr. McFarlane, Ian McFarlane, welcome to this podcast. Thank you. It's good Thank to be you. here. Andrew, I'll turn over to you for our, our first uh, couple of questions. Ian, you have volumes with Westminster John Knox Press on creation and Christology, and there's a volume in, on eschatology soon to be published. That looks like a systematic theology in the making. I wondered if you'd be happy to tell us which other topics for volumes you have in mind. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, if you look at the books, they're only about 200, 250 pages long. So it's not really a systematic theology. But I mean, what they are, I mean, it is, I wasn't planning to do it in that order or in that way. Uh, so there is, clearly there is a, a coverage here, but really what each of them is, is in a way is a kind of case study of a particular problem within the topic rather than exhaustive treatments of, of the topics themselves. So it doesn't really aspire to or have any rightful claim to be a systematic theology in the strong sense, um, but uh, more of an irregular dogmatics than a regular one, I think, and to use Bart's uh, terms, again, focusing on a particular uh, issue in each case rather than giving full coverage. Um, my sense of what I want to do next after the eschatology volume is out uh, is an ethics, probably be the last thing I write of any substance. Um, uh, length anyway. I've, I've always been taken uh, by uh, the idea that theology and ethics are interlinked. My theological uh, writing uh, is in many respects motivated by ethical concerns about how the church um, positions itself in the world. Uh, and I'm uh, interested in developing some ideas I've, I've had on that uh, in, in that uh, in that area. So I think that's probably the next piece. So in a way, I guess that does sort of continue the sense of, a, of something that looks like a systematic theology, but isn't quite. Um, but yeah, that's my that's my next thought. That distinction you made between regular and irregular dogmatics sounds like very much the subject matter of this podcast. I wonder if you could say a bit more about that. Yeah, distinction. well, the distinction comes from, uh, as you undoubtedly know, from Karl Barth. Um, uh, irregular dogmatics is occasional dogmatics or dogmatics that comes out of a particular uh, problem or challenge uh, that the writer, uh, the theologian, sees the church facing. So in Bart's own case, for example, uh, his Romans commentary was an exercise in irregular dogmatics as he saw it. Whereas 
the church dogmatics um, were regular dogmatics. That really is a systematic theology in a in, in a comprehensive sense, um, where uh, rather than taking uh, one's lead from a particular problem uh, that one wants to address in dogmatically uh, appropriate fashion, one is attempting to give a um, a, a fairly formal and detailed uh, move through uh, a locus um, uh, and, in fact, a whole series of loci uh, in, a, in a comprehensive way that more or less self-consciously abstracts from uh, the, the particular ecclesial situation in which one finds oneself. I mean, obviously, in the case of Barters with everyone else, one can certainly see traces of where the, uh, of, 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 of the context. Um, and obviously, in, in many contemporary theologies, positionality and being honest about one's context is is, is very much uh, uh, to the fore. Nevertheless, uh, the principle is, is is that of attempting to provide something that's comprehensive um, uh, that could be used. Um, I, I mean, as 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 a training tool, if nothing else, um, as opposed to something that again uh, it takes its takes its lead from uh, a particular. Uh, problem or occasion, uh, that uh, an itch that the theologian wants to scratch, I think, is the way mm -hmm. irregular dogmatics is perhaps best conceived. And if you're moving on to write about ethics, I think this is a topic where sometimes theological connections are made, but perhaps only to one or two areas. And I can imagine the doctrine of creation featuring quite prominently in some ethical treatments. Are you going to bring the, the breadth of what you've written about doctrine to bear on ethics. Do you think there are any connections to doctrine, uh, to ethics, that perhaps are underplayed uh, that you'd like to develop? Um, uh, undoubtedly, there are. And again, this is at this point, I haven't started writing anything yet, so I'm actually going to say I don't, I don't know in detail. I mean, just to give a sense, what I'm in again, this is an irregular exercise. What I'm what I'm thinking of doing in this project is to um, think about love in the way that I think one properly thinks about faith, um, even as justification by faith is not about, oh, I need to believe certain things in order to be saved, um, to use uh, John Henry Newman has a wonderful uh, line in one of his Oxford sermons that faith is fundamentally transparent. Um, uh, he's not, he doesn't, um, uh, cite uh, Luther's idea of passive righteousness, but I think it's what he's got in mind. Faith is the mode by which one appropriates the reality uh, of God's activity, not something one does. Uh, and therefore, the point of talking about faith is not to try to gin up certain kinds of internal cognitive or affective states, although those may come, that's fine, but that's not it. Similarly, uh, I think um, my intuition is that when we talk about love in terms of Christian ethics, uh, likewise, um, there is a need uh, not to think about internal affective states uh, primarily, that there here too, I think there is a, um, uh, a kind of passivity um, uh, that is appropriate in thinking about how one conceives uh, Christian action in the world. Um, uh, I mean, one of the passages that, that uh, strikes me, this comes out of a, of, of a, of a, talk I was asked to give with the Society of Christian Ethics some years ago, which sort of got me thinking on this, is, you know, one of the uh, 
difficult passages of many in the Sermon on the Mount is the is Jesus injunction that we're going to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, which of course sounds daunting and almost to the point of being absurd. But that re- that comes after the comment about God not doing anything morally particularly heroic; it's simply sending rain on the just and the unjust. So, uh, to my mind, that that for me is a clue, uh, I think, about um, uh, ethical action uh, that I that I'm wanting to pursue. And again, I'm wanting to I, I have an idea of a kind of parallelism here between how faith operates in a dogmatic theological register to sort of pick up your question and how love uh, might might uh, operate in an ethical one. That's something to look forward to, and especially connecting Luther and Newman. Yeah. <laughs> Newman's Newman's yeah. Um, lectures on justification where Luther, uh, or at least some um, sort of understanding of Luther comes in for uh, quite a bit of criticism. Whether he'd actually read very much Luther is a different question. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned the fact that you hadn't set out necessarily to treat doctrines systematically or in any particular order, but the, the question of where one starts is important, not least for teaching. You've got to start mm. somewhere. And in Cambridge, you devised a new paper which begins in the first year with God, creation, and evil. And that's really stood the test of time and is a, has proved to be a, a very good way into teaching systematics. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about your your reasoning to that particular place to start? Yeah. Um, part of it is, uh, I think, one of the things I want to do uh, when I'm presenting students with uh, systematic or dogmatic or constructive theology, however one wants to talk about it, is to give them a strong appreciation of the um, tenuousness of the whole enterprise um, and the way in which uh, one is addressing topics that uh, have, in fact, um, in which well, the way they have been addressed has often done a great deal of damage, um, which has been the subject of, of appropriate critique, uh, both in terms of, you know, of going, you know, enlightenment worries about authoritarian kinds of discourse and uh, more contemporary contextualized worries about marginalization and exclusion. Um, and that uh, the risks are ineradicable uh, insofar as one is talking about, I mean, uh, God and evil are to me, uh, um, bracket that, 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 that paper, um, uh, both of them are rife with risks. God, because God is excessive in terms of uh, our understanding of being, and evil because it radically lacks it. Um, but in both cases, what we are urge, because it's the way our language works, is to is to take these realities and conceptualize them in ways that assimilate them to everyday discourse. Um, and one can't do that without betraying them. And I think, again, without in both cases doing a good deal of damage. Um, so God, creation, and evil. Um, the idea there is to, is to show the risks here, the, the way in which um, uh, uh, God isn't able to be uh, talked about uh, as other things are. And that does indeed carry the risk of tennis without a net, um, discourse that runs loose. Um, uh, evil uh, also can be domesticated in ways that are that are very problematic. Creation in the middle, well, that's that's the sphere of what we can talk about, um, uh, albeit in its relation uh, to what God wills on the one hand and what God does not will, evil on the other. So uh, 
the idea behind that paper, I mean, partly it was there were certain sorts of uh, basic groundwork things. I, I Because of the way the, the Tripost works at Cambridge, I wanted something that sort of brought in both theological and philosophical discourses um, uh, in ways that would, that would uh, help uh, uh, the, the subsequent sequence of papers, not only uh, in the theology area, um, but um, in terms of within theology, I think the basic idea was just was to provide a certain kind of obviously basic lexical and, and theological vocabulary around certain fundamental topics, but also again, um, to provide a kind of sensibility about the way in which uh, theological language works and often doesn't work. Maybe I could throw a question in uh, about what you see as the role of theology in various publics. We think about the church, the university, the wider society. Maybe one way to get into that question is in your own capacity as a professor at Emory University, do you interact with or do you ever come across colleagues in other fields who are completely baffled by what theology is and you give an account of why it has a place in the broader society and therefore in the university? Well, there are a lot of things I'm happy about being back at Emory for. One I'm not is that we, I'm back in a very siloed uh, environment. As I mean, I think all research universities are like this. Uh, Cambridge and Oxford are, I think, unique in that the college system provides a a means of forced interaction, if nothing else, over lunch um, uh, every day, uh, where I'm able, where I indeed do find colleagues like that, and I'm able, to, <laughs> I hope to disabuse them or at least provide some sense of comprehension. Um, when I do meet colleagues outside of the theology school at Emory, um, uh, Emory is a nice place to be because, uh, unlike many other American, uh, certainly, uh, Protestant origin, uh, universities that have divinity schools, the divinity school is held in pretty high regard. Um, but yeah, there are certainly plenty of people who are unclear as to what's going on uh, at, at at Candler. And part of my job, part of the remit of the Woodruff Professor, is to be an ambassador for the discipline, whatever that might mean. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that um, uh, one one job I see myself having, which uh, again I may not uh, have as much opportunity to do because of just the structure of the university here as I might elsewhere, is to clarify for people what I think theology is doing. I think, you know, one thing that for me, uh, theology is not, um, is a kind of theory of everything. I mean, you do get that among prominent theologians. I think Pannenberg sort of thought of theology that way. Uh, Tillich in his own way, I think, did. Um, for me, I'm, um, uh, and I think the fact that they both titled their major work Systematic Theology, uh, their use of that phrase um, uh, uh, reflects that. Uh, my own view is more Bardian in the sense that I think of myself more as a dogmatic theologian in that what I see myself doing is a more localized discourse. It is a discourse that is church tied and is fundamentally about keeping the church honest and faithful uh, to its message. Um, and therefore, I view it as a fundamentally critical discipline. I mean, again, not that people like Pannenberg and Tillich don't. They, uh, in their own ways, thought that very much, too. But, but it, it really is tied to the life and witness of the community. Uh, in that sense, it's a parochial kind of discourse, um, which um, uh, yeah, people who are outside the community certainly might overhear with varying degrees of interest. And of course, it provides, uh, there are certainly occasions for talking uh, to people who are doing analogous work in other religious communities, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever it might be, uh, where um, in a certain sense, my interest in those kinds of discourses is less 
um, as I think is often the case now for people interested in, in, in comparative theologies, less trying to find any common denominator than to try to uh, suss out what are sort of common problems and concerns that are raised as one attempts to uh, uh, reflect on communal practice in the context of a wider culture uh, where at this point, at least uh, even in the, what traditionally is the Bible Belt, uh, many people, not simply else in the academic sphere, but in the wider society uh, find the discourse baffling or associate it with a particular subset of Christian discourses, which don't necessarily reflect the, the, uh, the environment out of which I come. I'd like to ask you, in writing a book about a particular topic, Christology, creation, eschatology, how have you been able to stop yourself from making each book be about everything in Christian theology? Yeah, well, I think that's just, I have a <laughs> fairly <laughs> narrow, well, I think the fact that I'm, I'm generally looking at one particular, so for example, the creation book is essentially a, I mean, it's the least ambitious of the three that, of, of the three of the current series, I suppose, is really just simply a, a, a defense of creation ex nihilo um, over against um, uh, some very powerful critiques and alternative positions, process theology uh, being uh, probably the most obvious one. So I'm really looking at a very particular doctrine and a particular line of criticism against it, namely that it, I mean, the idea that it, that it's, that uh, it presents God as distant or authoritarian or tyrannical, whatever it might be, uh, and attempting to, uh, you know, uh, articulate the doctrine with those kinds of concerns in mind. So an exercise and a kind of resource small there. Um, in the Christology book, um, uh, there, there's a little bit more of a positive thesis. I am interested in recovering there, too, a traditional doctrine, in this case, Chalcedonian Christology. Um, but in this, in the case of that book, with a particular angle, um, uh, attempting to uh, develop what I call a Chalcedonianism without reserve, uh, where I want to argue that uh, traditional uh, Chalcedonian or reception of Chalcedonianism uh, gives rise to many modern critiques of the doctrine, namely that the humanity of Christ gets overwhelmed uh, by the divinity or the divinity uh, uh, tends to put the humanity in the shadow. And I, uh, I think that in fact, that's a fair critique. It's a critique that Schweitzer made and many have made, made subsequently um, of the way Chalcedon was appropriated um, uh, in the churches, both East and West. But what I want to argue in the book is taking seriously uh, the um, the adverbs uh, associated with the definition, um, you know, um, uh, you know, not divided, not separated, not confused, uh, not changed, uh, actually provides a good means of preserving the integrity of the humanity uh, alongside the divinity, and that's the burden of the book. So, uh, again, the fact, the irregular character, if you will, of the of, of the projects, um, that is, the fact that I'm dealing with a particular problem and attempting to. Uh, focus my discussion around it, I think, uh, makes it um, easier to not, uh, because the ambition is fairly small, uh, not to wander, I hope, too far afield. Although, uh, you know, on the other hand, hopefully also provide enough context to make it seem like this isn't too recondite uh, an exercise in either case. The secret really is to, is to come up with the right problem or the right question around yeah, which everything so. else can crystallize. At least, again, for the for the kind of project I want to do. I mean, if if, if one, I mean, I think of uh, my colleague, uh, University of Virginia, Catherine Sonderager, who is doing a 
systematic theology in the regular sense, where there, you know, there is a need to, that also is a problem in its own way, but there it's a problem of a kind of architectonic of how do you bring everything into the, into the uh, compass of a multi-volume work, but nevertheless still finite. Uh, but for me, it really is in each case a fairly, uh, a fairly focused problem where, where I hope I have a, an intervention that is that is timely, but I hope also isn't simply ephemeral. And I'd like to think that what I'm that the, that the proposals I'm making uh, uh, aren't um, uh, terribly indexed to the to 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 my particular time and place. I'd like to think they have some broader, um, uh, you know, uh, lasting dogmatic import. But nevertheless, the focus is important. I think for me, in terms of generating generating the uh, the argument. With that in mind, and the fact that your books won't be ephemeral and let's hope perhaps even these podcasts won't be and people will be listening to them after the eschatology books out can you can you give us a trailer of what the presenting problem or challenge is for the eschatology book yeah uh the eschatology book is called the hope of glory um and uh what i'm the problem is the tension i see between hope and glory uh that uh, to put it crudely uh, hope uh, tends to fall on a horizontal axis, axis um, uh, temporal, futurish, uh, and glory is more vertical. Um, uh, that is the the you know inbreaking of God's uh, God's reality. I mean the Mount Tabor or or on Sinai or whatever. Um, and um, so the, the 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 tension that I see in eschatologies uh, is on the one hand a kind of uh, a radical otherworldliness, um, which I think uh, shifts from, um, well, uh, betrays a notion of hope, which I think uh, hope is a tricky category. On the one hand, as Paul says, you don't hope for what you see. Uh, on the other hand, if hope is completely disconnected from present experience, then I think uh, it becomes simply fantasist and not and not uh, not genuinely hope. Um, so I think there is a genuinely otherworldly dimension to Christian hope. I mean, resurrection, you know, life, resurrection of the dead and life of the world to come. Uh, but these can't simply be disconnected from um, the realities of life here and now. And I think the very fact that one that resurrection is the content of Christian hope, which is what I mean, resurrection of the body. What is the body? The body is the precipitate of all our interactions with other creatures between birth and death. So um, the idea that that is what is ultimately affirmed, that to affirm human life is to affirm the life as it has been lived and suffered uh, in whatever finite time span uh, is given to us uh, is an index of the tension between um, you know, what we hope for that is not simply reducible to the possibilities of this world on the other hand, the idea that it's precisely life in this world that is evidently the object of God's, um, uh, you know, eternal interest. Uh, mm. the, the way, I mean, one a passage that is important for me here is Jesus' uh, citation of Deuteronomy in his um, uh, encounter with the devil in the wilderness. Uh, Persons do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, you know, important to read that. It's not you know, not by bread alone, but by every word as though the word were kind of icing on the cake. It's, it's, a, it's an alternative. And what I want to, what I, what my sense is that what uh, the difference between now and life in uh, life and glory is that um, uh, we live now indirectly. Uh, our relationship to God is mediated through creaturely relations, secondary causes, 
Uh, and what we look for is a life that is lived to God, to paraphrase Paul in Romans 6, uh, that is sustained by God's word alone. And where we begin to get an inkling of that is precisely uh, in the hearing of the gospel, because the gospel of forgiveness uh, is effectively a declaration that what our lives are constituted by is not the record of um, realities that have brought us to where we are, which again are a matter of our interacting with other creatures uh, for good and often mostly for ill. Um, those shape who we are. Those, you know, we, we bear our, again, the bodies that we have come into eternity, but they don't define our value. Our value is defined by God's word. And the, and the good news is precisely that, that as we uh, contemplate who we are and what our destiny is, um, our, our, uh, what we have done badly or failed to do uh, is not decisive. Um, what is decisive is resting on the word of promise um, that declares our life salvageable, uh, subject of redemption in spite of our merits. So that's it's exploring those issues that are that's at the heart of the book. Josh mentioned at the beginning of the podcast your interest in the relation of the scriptures to theology, and we've had two lovely examples so far of, of taking a passage from the New Testament, in fact, uh, from, yeah, from the Gospels, uh, although they're uh, with its um, uh, origin in Deuteronomy and um, and responding to it. I wonder whether the, the theological virtues are, are uh, in, in the background here as well, because if you take creation and Christology to be about faith, then you're writing a volume on hope. And the ethics volume is structured around love. Is that an yeah, intentional expression? That was not intentional, but yeah, it's, that's certainly there. <laughs> you need to call upon uh, Bonaventure, who one of his secret, you know, special powers seems to be to connect anything to anything else in a, a surprisingly plausible way. Um, and he particularly likes lining things up with virtues and so on. Um, we're going to uh, turn now, I think, uh, back to you, Josh. Yeah, just. Another question we had discussed was, and it, it's somewhat open-ended to where you want to go with it, but where do you see as some of the most fertile areas in theology today, uh, where things should be going, maybe challenges that we're facing, headwinds, both in research and teaching in the university and the churches and so on? There are challenges that the church faces, um, which are not necessarily the challenges that theology faces exactly, um, although they're not unrelated. I think one one major problem that I think theology faces is a problem of Catholicity in a couple of different uh, registers. The, the, the Catholicity here referring to the uh, essentially the, the scope of of conversation um, uh, within which uh, one uh, reflects on Christian faith and practice. Uh, on the one hand, uh, I think there's you know the polarization that affects uh, certainly. Uh, North American, and to a lesser extent, I think, but still significantly North Atlantic culture more generally, uh, is certainly present in theology. And I do worry about um, uh, a kind of, um, well, not a kind of, a, a genuine um, non-hearing uh, uh, that happens across uh, theological discourses. It is, you know, interesting to read, e even among, I mean, obviously there are uh, academic theologians on the right and the left, how bibliographies and indexes often don't overlap uh, in ways that are somewhat depressing. And I, I, I think uh, attempts to listen widely uh, are important within the academy. Um, I think also part of that is also being attentive to voices uh, outside the academy and that part of what 
part of the measure of uh, the orthodoxy of the church's message is whether it's heard as good news by the poor, because that's how Jesus defines his own, uh, his, you know, to John the Baptist attempts to vindicate his own, his own mission. Um, and, a, you know, poor, I think, understood broadly here is referring to those who are on the margins of church and society. Is what is being said here something that is that registers with them, and if not, what is it about the way we're talking that isn't? So those are two ways in which I think theology uh, is challenged. I feel myself challenged, given my own place in in, in the ecology, uh, to attempt to listen broadly. I mean, I think I was trained. My own training uh, it was happened to be at Yale University. It's not unique to there, but it was done well there. I think was one that gave me uh, a, a good sense of the value of Catholicity in terms of uh, temporal and, and confessional in terms of, you know, academic writing. So there was a, a you know, a good deal of emphasis uh, on, um, on classic and also pre-modern texts. I think one particular, my own uh, uh, Dr. Mutter, uh, Kathy Tanner, has, you know, said that part of the advantage of looking at people like Maximus the Confessor, who's one of my uh, uh, side interests, uh, but other pre-modern writers as well, is it, it helps you get over the ruts uh, in which uh, modern theology has run itself. For my own purposes, one of the things Maximus was very good at as a Lutheran, uh, and therefore an Augustinian, is uh, providing a way of addressing certain kinds of questions that don't simply reinscribe the kinds of debates and problematics that have that have marked Western theological discourse since since the 16th century. So I think there's there's a way in which um, going to uh, the patristic era, the medieval era, provides you know that there's there's enough difference from now, that, that it uh, excites my own imagination, but I think also that of, 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 of readers. And in terms of looking at um, or being uh, being pushed, in my case, by communities of color in Atlanta, by um, certainly uh, feminist theologians and others, to recognize how language that may f- that may function well to communicate the gospel to a certain audience and in a certain context doesn't do so well in other contexts, and are how are there ways um, you know, obviously, one can never uh, anticipate how things are going to sound in every con in every uh, setting, but to have uh, at least a sensitivity to okay, who do I want to make sure want to be attentive to, whose concerns might I otherwise not uh, be representing or or having an ear to. So for the the eschatology volume, this is particularly important because to write about hope as a fairly privileged white guy uh, at a major university uh, is is risky. So to tr- to formulate what I want to say and at every moment to attempt to figure out, okay, how does this, how can I imagine this to the extent that I can imagine it, partly by in consulting, uh, you know, other texts where I think this is done well. How does my talk about hope uh, not be cheap and facile? How does it attend to those uh, who suffer um, in ways that I do not? And again, I have no illusions that I'm going to, you know, in every case, get that right. But I think to have that as a constant voice in the back of my head uh, is an important feature for theology. I mean, I think fine theology has been written for 2,000 years, but theological, various theological discourses, uh, even very, very fine ones, 
doubtless, you know, without question, have suffered because their audience has been invariably rather narrow. And so the kinds of ways in which what is being said is heard uh, in other contexts has not been plumbed to the depths it needs to. I think the, you know, the real gift that contextual theology has provided to the wider guild over the last 50 years, uh, a little more now, uh, has been to try to hold folk responsible uh, to the effects of their discourse in ways that I don't think were on most theologians' uh, radar before that time. One of the things that has interested us in this podcast has been the relation of doctrines and the idea that one of the most interesting, compelling parts of thinking about systematics is the way in which one supposedly separate doctrine impinges on another. And we've had some good examples of that, I think, already in talking about both God and evil in different ways as that which can't just be spoken of as if they were beings amongst beings. In talking about creation out of nothing, you talked about the way in which that has been interpreted as presenting a certain doctrine of God as, as domineering, for instance. And so in addressing the doctrine of creation, you were also addressing the doctrine of God and perhaps also the way in which Christ's humanity comes into the discussion of Christology. I, one way of asking this question about the relation of doctrines would be to say, is there anything about what you've written in later volumes of your collection that would throw light on something that you've written about earlier, such that if you were going back, you might in include something? Or any really any other uh, reflections on where the relation of one doctrine to the other can be really a fruitful exercise? Well, I think, I mean, for me, uh, I, I am actually... Uh perfectly happy with the with the phrase systematic theology but precisely in that in that register that is not in the idea of creating a system but rather sort of etymologically and in, in trying to figure out how various doctrines stand together which is what sunistimi means um, so one of the things that I attempt to do in in the introductory systematic theology course I teach here is to uh, attempt to illuminate for students how, for example, the creation from nothing, as far as I can see, is fundamentally a doctrine that's motivated by soteriology. Uh, only if God is the sole antecedent condition of creatures' existence can God's promise to redeem creatures be viewed as ultimately trustworthy. Um, if you want to give that, that kind of, of sovereignty up, as, for example, uh, process theologians want to do for other theological gains, uh, you lose that, that notion of, of, uh, of, of guaranteed outcome, so to speak. So I think uh, that's an important uh, piece of, um, uh, of, of, well, a vital piece of what theology is about and what systematic thinking means, precisely how does what one says in one area impinge elsewhere. Um, I'm not, I don't have a lot of retracts. I mean, obviously I read stuff I've written and I think I could write it better now, but I don't have a lot of retractiones uh, uh, on, on tap. I mean, if I look back at my doctoral dissertation, which is happily out of print, it's far more of a uh, social doctrine of the Trinity than I would, than I would countenance now. Um, so my mind has changed on certain things. But I think what, I've, what has happened in terms of the movement, certainly uh, from, you know, in the last 15, 10, 15 years in the, in the books that I've been writing uh, recently, this sort of non-systematic theology, is it's precisely issues that have come up in, in the book that I was working on that leads to the next book. So um, uh, my own reflections, my, partly my reflections on how I treat Jesus' resurrection, which has probably been the most controversial, as far as I can make out, uh, feature of um, uh, the Christology book, uh, namely that resurrection doesn't mean more 
Jesus' life ends on Golgotha, so that there are not that the resurrection, ascension, and parousia are not three further events, but rather three, uh, as it were, aspects of God's vindication of Jesus' life. That way of thinking about what resurrected life means has pushed me. You know, was part of what pushed me to do the eschatology book, talking about how resurrection works for the rest of us. Um, so my own, although again, it's not a systematic theology in terms of its comprehensiveness, it reflects the sequence of books reflects systematic concerns in that it's been an issue that has been lingering from a previous, from the previous text that has pushed me to move to the next one. So again, Christological issues uh, emerged in the creation book that led me to think about um, uh, Christology more deeply uh, in the incarnation book and so forth. We're closing out these interviews with a, a series of three or four kind of quick questions just uh, for wider interest uh, to get your perspective on things. The first one is, what is one book you would recommend to a, a beginner in theology? And then a follow-up, just so you can think in two red, two levels here is, and then also a book that you would recommend to somebody who's already had an introduction, but wants to go deeper. This could be contemporary or historical. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, Again, part of this is just, you know, books that, that have excited me over the course of the years. But I think two books that I think uh, for beginners are actually, I mean, again, partly in terms of what I initially said about the, the course uh, at Cambridge, uh, uh, Andrew asked me about, um, are Bonhoeffer's uh, Cost of Discipleship and Kierkegaard's Attack on Christendom, um, both of which I think... Um, uh, disabuse one of any uh, romantic senses of what uh, the church and theology are about, while also providing some deep and, and penetrating insights about um, what it means to think about uh, Jesus as Lord. Um, so those are those are sort of two things that, are, you know, they're not, you could give them to a middle school student, I don't think, unless that person were very bright, but in terms, you know, a bright undergraduate who is interested or somebody who is just, you know, mm -hmm. The general public, educated public one, those would be two books uh, that I would uh, certainly commend. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, books that are that are uh, for ones farther along, um, you know, part of that has to do with what you're, you know, what's angling you. I mean, I mean, one book that has, you know, powerfully influenced me, again, I think it's not so much an, a beginning book is one that at least for, at least for me as a white person comes later is James Cone's God of the Oppressed. I think that's a, uh, I think his, it's his, his best book. Uh, and um, one that I, I think positions theology in, 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 um, in, in, in very interesting ways. My own, again, my, uh, my own teachers, uh, Kathy Tanner's uh, Jesus, Humanity and the Trinity, which is she describes as a brief systematic theology, uh, is another book that I think, um, uh, again, is, is uh, deeply rooted in the tradition, but also attentive to contemporary concerns that I think is, is accessible for someone who's got some theological training without necessarily having a doctorate. Um, again, it isn't something I think uh, I would, I would, advocate somebody with no background going into, but I think it's a very helpful text to use. I, actually, as a, as a side, um, when I first, uh, I was baptized when I was in college and I came to theology sort of all at once and I went going to the library and I saw on the shelf, uh, Basic Questions in Theology by Wolfhart Pannenberg. I thought, oh, this would be a great thing to start off with. <laughs> so I realized I was very quickly in over my head. Uh, so, but anyhow, those are, uh, those are a few uh, texts I might suggest. There might be a bit of overlap here, but if, uh, I want to ask you also, which 
two theologians have had the biggest impact on you, one pre-modern, one modern, let's say. And modern yeah. could include still living or could include... Everything. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, in terms of pre-modern, I think Luther is probably the one who's had the most impact on me in a lot of ways. Um, uh, in terms of uh, contemporary uh, or near contemporary people, I mean, you know, I've been a lot of folks. Again, uh, there is some overlap. Cohn, Bart, Bonhoeffer, again, my own teachers, uh, Kathy Tanner, David Kelsey. Uh, those would be some folks who have been uh, particularly influenced influential on me. Um, yeah. In terms of just giving me, I mean, again, I've done a lot of work on Maximus the Confessor and I found him very interesting, but in terms of giving me sort of a perspective on how theology works or how I conceive theology working, those would be uh, people I'd hi highlight. And a final one, what are you reading lately? I just finished reading a really fine book. Um, where is it? I'll actually show it up because it's worth advertising. Freedom, Freedom and, and Sin by Ross McCullough, who's a young uh, scholar, um, but it's a fascinating book. It's basically a Thomist uh, account of uh, how one, and it's not a theodicy, but it is trying to come up with an idea of how one can think about how evil comes about in a way that isn't um, uh, deleterious to the confession of God's goodness. It's very, very finely done, uh, and has I was attracted to it because... Uh, Karen Kilby, Kathy Tanner, David Burrell, uh, who are some of three of my most uh, uh, favorite contemporary writers <laughs> on theological themes, uh, uh, have recommended it. So that's that's that that was a very very uh, nice surprise. I got it at the AAR and I enjoyed it. So that's one. Um, well, thanks, Ian. Want to respect your time. So great. Well, yeah. happy to happy to uh, to, to participate. It was fun. Thanks. Thanks, Ian. I'm, I'm working away on this book on mediation, so I definitely need to put some things from the eschatology book in. You know, mediated by bread now and unmediated, unmediated vision of the word in there. Okay. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Bye.